0: that's what i'm talking about wait okay now from the beginning welcome to bs beyond stereotypes a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world
1: as the supreme court became more conservative um, over the time that i um i served as a judge um i just found that my views um in terms of what i thought the the right outcomes in in a lot of the the key cases where they're just at odds with you know the direction that the supreme court was heading in. Mm-hmm. Um and that's that's fine. I mean the lower court judges you, you know you're not going to be in a position where you have a supreme court that's always handing down decisions with which you uh, are in 100% agreement and you know it's not nonetheless your job as a lower court judge to faithfully follow and apply those decisions whether you agree with them or not, right? And I accepted that as part of the oath when I when I took the uh, took the job. But when Bruin and Dobbs came down, those were just such jolts, at least um, in, in my mind, to um, uh, to the direction that the court had been going, and um, especially the decision to overrule Roe uh-huh. and, the, and the really pretty dramatic transformation of, of um, you know Second Amendment law that occurred in Bruin. Those, I, I, I don't know, that just that had a real impact on um, you know on my thinking about is this something that I still want to do.
0: Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is Paul Watford, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited. I mean, I I think we first uh, kind of met, uh, actually, maybe about a year before you left the bench, um, and we've never met in person. This is the closest that we've gotten in real life, but I'm really excited to to have this conversation with you, and I think that um, there's a lot uh, of information that you're going to be able to impart to our audience, so um, thanks for joining.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure okay. to be here.
0: Okay, so what I like to do, I don't, I don't give long bios. Um, people can Google you if if they want to learn more. But I will um, give our audience a, a a brief outline of your uh, career, um, and so and you can let me know if I what I missed or if I say anything um, that's incorrect. But Paul attended uh, Berkeley, uh, uh, UC Berkeley undergrad. Um, and then went to UCLA Law School, uh, where he was the editor of the Law Review. Um, and uh, after UCLA uh, clerked for the Ninth Circuit um, and then uh, clerked for uh, the U.S. Supreme Court for the Honorable Ruth Bader Ginsburg for four years. Um, after that, you joined uh, Munger for a very short, short stint as an associate, and then uh, went to the to become a U- U- USA for the Central District. Um, after uh, where you did uh, several trials, and then joined Sidley for a brief stint, and then returned to Munger, where you made partner uh, in two thousand three. Uh, and then uh, was appointed by uh, Barack, President Barack Obama to to the Ninth Circuit as a judge. Um, and you remain there for 11 years and recently left this court, which I find very interesting um, to go back into private practice with Wilson Sonsini as a partner, uh, a litigation partner. So what did I miss, Paul?
1: You didn't miss anything. That, uh, that covers it.
0: Yay. So we don't have to, (laughs) we don't have to talk about that stuff anymore. Let's get to, to the, to the interesting stuff. So um, one of the things that I, when I was doing a little bit of research about you that I didn't find is like where you're from, where you grew up, you know, any of that stuff. And I, and, and I like to, 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 to the extent that you're willing to do it. I like to have guests share with our audience, like, you know, where, where you're from, how you grew up, what your child, you know, what your child upbringing was like, who was, who supported you? How, how did you even, you know, like have the courage and the, the, to be able to do all the things that you've done and, and did that have anything to do with your upbringing?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I can start by just answering the first part of the question, which is where Where did I grow up? I, I grew mm-hmm. up down in Orange County, uh, here in Southern California. Um, I was born in Garden Grove. Um, we first lived in Santa Ana, moved to Irvine, and then my parents bought their first house together um, in the I don't know, it must have been the mid mid to late '70s in Laguna Beach, of all places. Mm. Wow. Um, so, so, yeah, so a little bit of background. My mother is white. My dad is black. Um, uh-huh. And I think my dad was always quite hesitant about having us move to a community like Laguna Beach that was overwhelmingly white. Uh, there were very few minorities there. Um, but I think my mom persuaded him that, uh, <laughs> that you know, they had found a, a good deal in a house. And so, anyway, that's where we moved when I was in uh, I guess I must have been in third or fourth grade and I went through public schools in Laguna Beach including Laguna Beach High School um I grew up with uh with one uh, full sister um, she's two and a half years younger than me um and I then I have three half siblings um, who I'm not as close with but um but uh, you know but uh, was was in touch with during uh, during my uh, oh. growing up years um So I don't know. Yeah. Ask me anything you want about uh, about that period. But uh, but that's the short of uh, in terms
0: of where I grew up. Well, yeah, that that's very interesting. I mean, did did you how how was that being, you know, because obviously you're you're mixed race, but you're visibly uh, black. So, you know, how how was that? Did you encounter um, uh, stereotypes or or problems? in Orange County?
1: Oh, for sure. Yes. Uh, I mean, not. Um, well, I I, I I should qualify that. I mean, there was not a whole lot of overt racism. Certainly not. Um, you know, anything close to what our you know our prior generations faced. Um,
0: uh-huh.
1: But um, but yes, I think there there certainly were a lot of stereotypes that um, people had about what folks you know who look like us uh, um, are supposed to be supposed to be like. Um, a lot of just, I, I I would chalk it up to um, thinking of my classmates, just a lot of in, insensitivity, really, wow. to just, you know, making comments that were incredibly insulting and hurtful, but maybe the people just didn't even realize it. You know, they're just wow. ignorant and not, um, not in tune at all with what it's like to be um, a, a minority and in a predominantly white environment. Um, but I, I would say on the whole, um, Laguna Beach was a pretty liberal place on on the whole. Um, So I I can't say I encountered a whole lot of just overtly racist people. I will share one tiny little anecdote that just for whatever reason has stuck in my mind, though. I remember uh, I was with my mom and my sister, and we were just walking um, down the street. We were going back to our car, and this white man— kind of got in my mom's face and just with this really hateful expression, looked at her and said, Are those yours? You know, gesturing to, to me and my sister. And we were just like, we were really young. We had no idea. But it was clear that he was just completely disgusted with the fact that obviously my mom had, had kids with a black man. And mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he I don't know what else he said to her, but it was she, I remember she kind of stepped in between us and the guy because she was just not certain it was this guy gonna you know attack us or her or something it was just a weird um experience but there wasn't a whole lot of that kind of just overt racism that we confronted Mm um i'm sure it was it was tougher on my parents um yeah you know as a mixed race couple in in that environment i'm sure they got um you know a lot of uh I, i i don't know i have not talked to them about that but i do remember the couple a couple of occasions when we would go out as a family together, um, you know, to go to a restaurant or something and just yeah, always wondering, why are people looking at us so strangely?
0: So that's interesting. You've never talked to your parents about their experience being a mixed race race couple.
1: No, um, not not at least in terms of, you know, how how did you deal with you know the rest of society and, and how you were perceived and the like I, I have not had that conversation with them
0: at all. But I guess it's not that that uh unusual because as parents you're always trying to protect your kids right you're trying mm-hmm. to to shield them from you know the the ugliness of society you know until until they actually have to face it so i guess that's probably you know what what was happening in your family
1: yeah yeah i suspect that's
0: right so, what about the teachers? You know, because I've I've read about folks, and I've I've talked to folks who've said that there've been teacher there were teachers in their lives who told them that, you know, they couldn't do something or they weren't going to be able to do something, you know, because of, you know, basically because they they were racist or or just didn't have the the lived experience to deal with. With someone like like you, did what kind of experiences you have educationally and and with your teachers? Were they supportive?
1: Yes, I, I was really lucky in that respect because you're right. Um, I, I I mean I did not have um, any teachers that I can remember who, um, you know, were were at least um, overtly racist in the sense of trying to tell me that you know I couldn't do something or I wasn't good enough for this or that i had teachers on the whole who were incredibly supportive Um, i I remember in particular my 10th grade english teacher um, was um, probably one of the most influential uh, teachers i had as a high school student Um, i I mean she was just a a fantastic um, you know teacher just in terms of her ability to convey knowledge um, but also just to to encourage me to, to develop my writing skills i think she Thought that I was a good writer, or at least had promise, and so she uh-huh. really encouraged me to to um, to work on my writing. And, and of course, that ended up being really important um, as a as a lawyer later on. Um, right. So I I feel really lucky um, that I had such supportive teachers. Um, you know, I I guess the what I will say, not not to skip ahead too much, um, but uh, Gooden Beach is a fairly affluent place it was less so back then to be honest but uh-huh. but it's still you know I mean, a lot of a lot of well-off people but
0: yeah there's the, there's wealth down there
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i'm just saying back in the in the 70s early 80s it was just it wasn't quite the the newport beach uh, you know that was always the uh, the really rich you know, people lived in newport beach uh, uh-huh. now now of course it's 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 uh, just the same but you know the public schools um that that i attended i, I can't say that they were um, I mean, they were good, but not great. And I realized that when um, I was in college, I I remember in particular, um, I took, I, I did go to Berkeley as an undergrad, but for my fall semester of my, of my junior year, I spent it at Georgetown, where mm-hmm. a lot more of the students had gone to, um, you know, um,
0: private schools,
1: private schools, exactly. Oh, and just comparing the education they had <laughs> uh-huh. to what I had, there was, I mean, they were leagues ahead uh, in uh-huh. terms of just what they had read, the languages they had studied, the, you know. So comparing that to, to the education I had in Laguna, I, I you know, it was not the kind of five star uh, uh, education, but probably, you know, three and a half, four stars. And, and as I said, I was lucky because the teachers were, were so supportive.
0: Well, I have a story about that. So I, I, I grew up in Compton. Both my parents taught in the Compton school district, and so I grew up in Compton. I went to Compton Public School, Dominguez High School, and you know was you know a, a, an honor student and all that. And actually went to uh, USC early when I was sixteen. Um, and I remember the first class. You talked about writing and being prepared. The first class that I had was a big, you know, big, a big lecture class. And you had to do the exam in a blue book. And Mm. I had never heard of a blue book. I had never used a blue book. I had no idea what you were supposed to do. And, uh, and, and uh, that was the First time I think I ever got a C in my life, and I went to the professor and said, "What's wrong?" I knew the stuff, and he was like, "Yeah, but you only like wrote on one page in the blue book." It was like, "Here," I was like, "Yeah, but I said what I was supposed to say." So, I say all this to say that one preparation, me, you know, it is not, it's not necessarily that you don't have the the intellect, but if you don't Mm -hmm. have the exposure or the experience, um, then there's a lot of catching up to do. Right. And, and and I was like, oh, wow. So you just wanted me to like wax, you know, know, just, 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 just fill up this blue book, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, getting the answers. And, and it took me a while to figure out what writing really was. And so, yeah, writing mm-hmm. is a skill that, you know, if you can write well, you can do well. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, okay. So you graduate from, from public high school and you go to, um, to, to Berkeley undergrad. And how did you decide you wanted to go to law school? Are there other lawyers in your family, or how did how did you make that decision?
1: Sure. So uh, I did not know when I was at Berkeley that I would ultimately go to law school. Um, although I will say that my dad, pretty much from uh, the time I was a little kid, was pushing me to go to law school. Uh, Interesting. That was going- He so and and he had um, himself attended UCLA law school um, back uh, when he was in his early mid mid 20s. And he had finished his first year there. And then my mom got pregnant with me. And so my my dad said, I'm just going to take a year off and you know, try to get the family finances in order. And then I'll go back and finish my degree at at UCLA. And he never did, he didn't finish his law degree. but he, had, he always, I just remember from the earliest you know, time when I was a young kid, he was always kind of pushing me to go to law school. I could tell him that's what he wanted me to do. And, and probably just being a rebellious teenager, I was, you know, sort of saying, no, I don't want to go to law school. I want to do right. something else. So as an undergrad, my um, ambition was to become a high school history teacher, actually. And okay. that is what I had planned to do. Um I worked for for two years after I graduated. Um, and I just I, I could not find a job initially. I, I was a history major at Berkeley. I could not find a job after I graduated. And I just was going to the um to the sort of job board, you know that they posted uh-huh. at the school. And I saw an opening for a position um. At the lawyer referral service of the San Francisco County Bar Association. Uh-huh. and I didn't really know what that was, but it was you know, a job that a uh, was job. available. And I got right. hired. and um our job basically was just to take calls from people. um it was just, you know, a, a service to the public that the county bar provided. And people would just call and say, "I have this legal problem. Can you help me find a lawyer? And oh, so our God. job was to to interview the people, find out what kinds of legal needs they had. And then we had a a roster of attorneys who had agreed to to take referrals in certain areas. And so we would then get off the phone with the person who called, call the lawyer and see if we could arrange for that lawyer to to do an initial consultation. So, you know, I had a little bit of exposure to lawyers through that job. Um, And then I knew one lawyer um, who was my dad's best friend. Uh, He was a criminal defense lawyer at the time. Uh, Milton Grimes is his name. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's he's quite well well known in uh, in some circles, but he had a, a, you know, he's basically a sole practitioner um, back when I was a kid um, uh, doing criminal defense work. And so during the summers, I would often go and uh, watch his trials and he would uh, just sort of bring me in as part of the legal team. I remember, you know, after trial, we would go back to his office and he would, you know, I could sit there as they were strapped. Asked me my opinions about, you know, how I thought this this witness or, or that's, you know, this strategic move would, would go down. And it was just fun. I mean, he was um, just a great, great mentor um, in my life. And, you know, I so he was the only lawyer that I knew growing up. And then, as I said, I had this exposure to um, to lawyers at the job I had. But it was really my wife who pushed me to apply to law school. Um, I, I was already going through the process of applying to. Get a, uh, I think it was like a one-year master's degree Uh in education that you needed to get a teaching certificate. That that again, that's what I was focused on. So, uh, but my wife said you should apply to law school at the same time. There's just there's no reason not to. Um, You you might decide that that's what you want to do instead. And so I took both the GRE and the um, the LSAT at the same time, basically, and Uh you know submitted the applications. Um, And I got into to UCLA for law school, and uh, you know, my wife was able, was really the one who persuaded me that that was the uh, the, the right thing to do. And, and what she said is, "Look, if you ultimately want to be a teacher, you can still do that even with a law degree. But if you get the law degree, you at least have a lot more options." Uh, Smart that the, lady.
0: <laughs> yes, she was. She was uh, quite
1: persuasive in that. And that's. I think that's what tipped me over the uh, the edge. And it, 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 of course, it was the absolute right decision. I ended up. Loving law school it was uh, one of the best decisions I made, and so I, I give all of the credit to her and and to my dad as well for always having that, you know, planting that seed and uh, pushing me toward in that direction uh, from the time I was a kid.
0: Well, t- thank her for us. Um, and and so you you got married right out of undergrad.
1: Yes, yes. I, I graduated in you know May or June, whatever it was, and got married in August at that same. Wow. Year.
0: Wow. So you guys were in at school together, I take it.
1: Yeah, I met okay. I met her. In fact, I met my wife at Berkeley as a freshman. She was a sophomore, so she was a year ahead of me.
0: OK, go. Oh, OK, girl. <laughs> All right. So so you clerked with the Ninth Circuit. I will tell you that I interned um, with the Ninth Circuit uh, for Harry Pragerson uh, um, yes. when, I, when I was at at Berkeley. So, you know, they are. Uh, I, I have stories that I like to tell about that experience, but um what was was that when you kind of got the bug for thinking, you know, when did you th- realize that maybe you wanted to be a judge?
1: Yeah, so no, i I would say that was much later. Um, you know, when I clerked, um, I you know i certainly thought that both of the judges for whom i clerked i thought they had one of the best jobs in the world um, uh-huh. but it it was i don't even know how, how to put it. it it just seemed so far beyond anything that i could ever hope to achieve um uh-huh. i i had no idea how one even became a federal judge especially and you know i didn't know any politicians, I didn't know senators, I certainly didn't know any president. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: the thought of ever be being appointed a, a federal judge was was pretty remote at that time. I was more focused just on trying to become a lawyer and um you know and and being a litigator. That I knew I, I knew I wanted to do that, but I didn't know much
0: beyond that. So and then of course obviously Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it doesn't get any more any more prestigious than that. Um what
1: was that like it, it it was an amazing experience i mean i was uh, so so incredibly lucky that she uh, she was willing to hire me i clerked for her during her third term on the court so she was relatively new um mm-hmm. she, she had been a judge a long time on the dc circuit before then but she was relatively new as a supreme court justice and she was not the celebrity figure she later you know she became in her later life she was okay a very quiet Quite, um, you know, introverted judge. She was, you know, just keeping her head down, doing doing great work on the Supreme Court. Um, not, uh, you know, I. Uh, she she had she was well known, um, at, you know, as a litigator for women's rights um, before she ever became a judge, and she, you know, would have been one of the giants of the law even if she had never gone on the bench. But I, I would say, you know, the the term when I clerked for her, she was still. Um, Relatively anonymous. I mean, I don't. Okay. I, I remember we went out uh, on a couple of occasions with her to, to the public functions, and it it wasn't like she was being mobbed, you know, <laughs> by, by crowds trying to take selfies, which is what happened later when I would go out with her. She just couldn't go anywhere without, you know, being surrounded by people who wanted to have their picture uh, taken with her. But it it was a fantastic experience. Justice Ginsburg was, uh, you know, again an incredibly influential mentor, a great teacher someone who cared a lot about her clerks. She she wanted to make sure that we, uh, you know, got all that we could out of the year that we spent in her chambers. Um, so she spent a lot of time with us working on our writing. And, um, you know, she, would, she was a very meticulous editor herself um, mm-hmm. and I mean, a really skilled writer. But uh, what I especially liked about what she would do is that, um, you know, we would give her, we would prepare first drafts of all the opinions. She would then edit them in pencil. Uh, on on paper and give the drafts back to us and oftentimes she would sit down with us and just explain why she made this change or why she made that change why she thought you know the way we had phrased this wasn't quite precise enough or you know it didn't need clarifying or whatever it was just and you know through osmosis you just learned so much um, from that kind of process when a really good writer um, is willing to spend that kind of time with you so Um, Yeah, it was one of the the highlights, obviously, of my legal career to spend a year in her chambers.
0: Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that there should be term limits on the Supreme Court justices?
1: Well, um, yeah, if you had asked me that uh, even 10, 15 years ago, I probably would have said absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I find myself much more on the fence. Um, and it's um, yeah. I mean that that's a, a complicated subject. Uh, we we could spend the the rest <laughs> of our time talking about that. I, I uh-huh. guess the the only thing I would say is that the the reason I I find myself um, more inclined to think that that would be a good idea is just because the the confirmation process now for Supreme Court justices seems so dysfunctional and so uh-huh. broken. Uh-huh. But my my main concern is that I don't know that imposing term limits would solve the problem. The what what people who have been advocating for imposing term limits say is that well it would regular regularize the appointments process and every president would get two appointments you know during a I think that's how it works out during a typical four year term. Uh-huh. But the problem is that if the president uh, and the senate are of opposite parties, um, there would not necessarily be a confirmation. Um, right, which we
0: experienced, have, though.
1: Exactly, exactly. Right? So I don't, I don't know that ultimately it solves any problems. That's my main concern. But uh, on the whole, you know, the proposal to have, let's say, an 18-year term limit. I don't think that's a, a terrible idea in concept. Um, that's a, a nice long tenure um, yeah, to have as a judge, especially um, as a judge on the Supreme Court, um, where a lot of, you know, uh, what all but. Justice Kagan, I think, uh, were, were you know, previously served as, as federal justice before that. So, in any event, I, I'm more open to it than I was before, but I'm not convinced that that would be the, the, the golden ticket to solve all of the problems that people um, think it might.
0: Well, I guess the, the biggest problem, as I see it, is that it's just become so politicized, right? It, you know, and right. and you know, there and it, 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 you used to feel that justice you know was just that it it is like it, it didn't matter what part what party or or uh politics or anything like that and that seems to have changed and it seems to me there there needs to be some kind of change or or something has to happen because we can't keep going the way we're going
1: yeah i i agree i think the Unfortunately, it has damaged the public's perception of the Supreme Court itself in some respects. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I hope that some some kind of bipartisan solution uh, can be put together where both parties just say, you know what, we've we've been blaming each other for the dysfunction, and you know it's been tit for tat. But let's just kind of start from a clean slate and come up with a system that's actually rational and, and works for the for, works for the country going forward.
0: Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you say, you know, I'm not anybody who knows politicians and I'm not anybody who knows folks. And, of course, I certainly don't know a president. And then you get uh, appointed by Barack Obama to the Ninth Circuit. So how did that happen?
1: Yeah, well, so it was, you know, a, a lot by happenstance, really. Um the, the key person in that in, in making that come about was one of my co-clerks, actually, with Justice Ginsburg. His name is Phil Weiser. He's now the Attorney General of Colorado. Um, he Back in 2010, 2011, he had taken a leave from his uh, regular job at the time, which was being a law professor at the University of Colorado. He joined the Obama administration during President Obama's first term. And I, I remember this distinctly. He sent me an email toward the end of, I think it was 2010. And he said, uh, Paul, I'm, I'm you know, getting ready to wrap up my um, my leave of absence from the law school. and I'm getting ready to go back. But I've, I've gotten to know the person in the White House Counsel's Office who is responsible for um, doing the vetting for President Obama's judicial nominees. If you ever had an interest in becoming a federal judge, why don't you send me your resume and I'll pass it on to her? You know, who oh, knows wow. What, what might come of that? And I... I remember sitting down and you know writing back to him and attaching my resumes, thinking, "Yeah, whatever, you know, this, nothing's right. going to come of this." Um, but uh, you know, a few weeks later, he he got in touch with me and said, "Hey, I, I you know I passed on your resume to the person, and she expressed uh, interest in potentially meeting you. So if you ever happen to be in D.C. Um, you know in the next few months, why don't you let me know and I'll try to set up a coffee or something so you could uh, meet this person and." Sure enough, um, you know, I, I let him know I was going to be in D.C. Uh, I think it was early 2011, and he, he arranged a meeting uh, uh, with someone in the White House Counsel's office. And, and that's that's basically how it happened. I had no other contacts with anyone in the Obama administration, certainly no one close to the president who uh, would be in a position to recommend me for, uh, for a federal judgeship. So it, it just went from there.
0: Well, and you know that that's that's incredible, but I think it's a, a testament to relationships, right? And yeah. you know, uh, t- I I firmly believe in relationships and kind of paying it forward and 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 ch- always tr- trying to connect people and think about who should know whom and and that kind of thing. Um, you know. Do you have a position on how important relationships is? Because I think that's something that folks in our audience, you know, would love to understand. You know, how do you go about making relationships and keeping them and and how important, uh, you know, obviously it's been important, but in other ways, I'm sure it, it's been important for you.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, no no question. Both both in terms of just having mentors, right? Those kind of right. mentor-mentee relationships are incredibly important. And uh, I've mentioned a couple of the key figures in, in my life who've um, been important in that respect. But also just, yeah, uh, relationships with your peers, right? And, um, you know, uh, especially when you're uh, in law school or early in your career, um, uh, you know, you want to have as broad a network of, of people that, um that that you know uh, and can draw on for support, and um, you know you're in a position perhaps to help them um, when um, when when they're trying to make a career move or something. Um, they might become aware of an opportunity. Just uh, as I said with Phil, um, I, you know I don't think he uh, we had never talked about my becoming a, a federal judge. I don't think he necessarily um, uh, assume that that's uh, something that I. Uh, wanted to do, but he was in a position where he could help make that happen. And um, I, I mean, I'm just so grateful that he reached out to me at that particular moment in time. Um, but yeah, I, to me, that's a perfect example of um, a relationship that uh, you know that went back. I don't know how how long we had known each other then, um, but we were we were good friends. Uh, we got got to be good friends during the clerkship. It stayed in touch. Um, you know, as we went our, our separate ways uh, during our legal careers, and then, yeah, that he was the perfect person to um, to open that door for me, and, and there's there's no question in my mind. I would never have become a federal judge had, had he not um, sent me that email, right, and uh, and started that process.
0: Wow. So so. That kind of leads me to or leads us to your going back into private practice. Because I remember talking to you and saying, you know, isn't this a a, a position for life? You know, like <laughs> aren't you aren't you like hooked up for life? You know, why you know what what um what would possess you? <laughs> to, to do that. And, and we laughed about it, but, but, you know, why don't, can you share with us what your thought process was?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, when I took the job and and really through, through most of my time on the Ninth Circuit, I, I had the same mindset that this is a lifetime appointment. I'm going to do this for the rest of my career. And, you know, that's, I that, that, didn't know of very many federal judges who, who uh, had stepped down before retirement age um, m- many of the judges in our court um you know served into their 80s and 90s uh, yeah. and still are right I mean still very productive so that is definitely the the life that I envisioned for myself when when I was first appointed um the turning point uh, came you know a couple of of terms ago a couple of Supreme Court terms ago when Dobbs and Bruin were handed down and mm. I think that's what first caused me to have, to start to question whether I wanted to spend the rest of my life potentially on, on the bench. Um, you know, the, those two decisions in, in particular just, um, well, let me just back up and say that, you know, as the Supreme Court became more conservative um, over the time that I, um, I served as a judge, um i just found that my views um in terms of what i thought the the right outcomes in in a lot of the the key cases were they're just at odds with you know the direction that the supreme court was heading in
0: mm-hmm. um and
1: that's that's fine i mean the lower court judges you, you know you're not going to be in a position where you have a supreme court that's always handing down decisions with which you uh, are in 100% agreement and you know it's not nonetheless your job as a lower court judge to faithfully follow and apply those decisions whether you agree with them or not right and I accepted that as part of the oath when I when I took the uh, took the job but when Bruin and Dobbs came down those were just such jolts at least um, in, in my mind to um uh, to the direction that the court had been going and um, especially the decision to overrule Roe mm-hmm. and, the, and the really pretty dramatic transformation of, of um, you know Second Amendment law that occurred in Bruin those, I, I don't know, that just, that had a real impact on, um, you know, on my thinking about, is this something that I still want to do? And part of that was, I think, because at the time the, both of those decisions came down, I had on my docket uh, then um, uh, cases involving abortion and gun rights that, oh. you know, were obviously going to be affected by what the Supreme Court had just held. And, um, you know, it. what dawned on me then was that, Probably for the rest of my time as a federal judge, um, I'm going to be serving um, uh, on a court that's um, or I'm, I'm going to be serving under a Supreme Court that's going to be issuing decisions like these that I'm okay. just going to fundamentally disagree with. And, right. and as, as I said a minute ago, it's nonetheless going to be my job to, to follow the those precedent.
0: Decisions. Right. Exactly.
1: Wow. 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 And, and often, you know, have to issue rulings and write opinions that reach what I view as the wrong outcomes in very, you know, extremely important areas of the law. And so that's that's what really caused me to to start to have doubts about whether I wanted to stay on the bench.
0: Wow, that 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 is that's deep <laughs> because I, I hadn't thought about it like that. It's. Um... So if you're if you have a case like a, an abortion case and Roe has been overturned and you write the opinion upholding uh, the precedent that has just come down. Um, can you still like, you know, write it in a way that it's like I'm doing this, but I wish. didn't have to do this or do you have to just buy into it hook line and sinker
1: well yeah you certainly can i think um as a judge express your views that i you know yeah i'm doing this reluctantly i'm I'm bound to follow what a higher court has told me to do um even though i don't necessarily agree with it you you certainly can say that and and judges often do in, in separate writings you know you can file a concurrence that says um, I'm going along with this result, um, even though I disagree with it. You know, only because um, binding precedent compels me to. Um, judges do that all the time. Um, but what you can't do, in my view, is basically engage in civil disobedience. Right? I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: when you take the oath of, of office, you um, you know, you basically have to put aside your your own personal views, and I, I don't mean personal views in terms of like political views, I just mean like your personal judicial philosophy. It, it, it really becomes irrelevant if there is a you know an on-point Supreme Court decision that tells you the outcome has to be X or the, the reason you have to follow is Y. Um, I, I think it's your obligation as a lower court judge to, to faithfully um, follow and, and apply those decisions, whether you agree with them or not. Some some of my colleagues on, on the Ninth Circuit um, you know, I, I remember Judge Reinhardt in particular, for example. Um, I mean, he thought that it was okay to push back, at least mm-hmm. in, you know, around the margins uh, at, at Supreme Court precedent that you disagreed with, and, and he he was famous for saying, "They can't catch them all." By which you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I can you know.
0: tell you, I can tell you that Harry Pregerson was like that too. Because, exactly. You're, yeah. Yep. Absolutely, because we had a we had a death penalty case. And I, and they, and they were, it was, they were sitting on bonk and, you know, they, he had each of us like do the research, you know, how should this go? And we, you know, he, he had us present to them, him, uh, you know, what, what the law was and how it should go. And all, all of us said, you know, unfortunately this guy, you know, this guy's got to get the death penalty. You know, this, this Mm -hmm. is pretty, it's pretty clear and I remember him saying, "Which one of you wants to pull the switch?"
1: hmm
0: hmm And we, we all looked at each other and said, "We'll go look at it again." <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I realized I I was not going to be a, a litigator. I could not. <laughs> I could not do that. But, so, yeah, i I did experience that. but, but I had because that was my only experience, I hadn't thought about the fact that from the other perspective, right? Because he just he didn't want to put anybody to death, right? right. But from your perspective, you know with the with the current Supreme Court, You know, the idea that you would have to do some of the things based on this precedent that they're they're now setting, I can see how that would be a horrible position to be in.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the, you know, as I said, it just sort of dawned on me that although these two decisions were the focus, there were just going to be a whole series of decisions going forward in really all of the, not all, but most of the hot button areas of the law that you know people are going to have the strongest feelings about my my views were just going to be at odds with those of, of the current supreme court and you know I, I listen I I had done exactly what you were describing um exactly what we were just talking about before um in plenty of cases you know during my time on the court there were I, I can think of you know easily a dozen even mm-hmm really hard, hard cases in which I cast votes that were against what I thought the proper interpretation of the law should be. But nonetheless, as you were describing when you had the conversation with Judge Gregson, the law was clear. There, there really mm-hmm. wasn't any ambiguity and either because there was a you know a supreme court decision on point or maybe there was a, a, a statute um, that congress had passed that had been interpreted uh, interpreted in a certain way it really compelled you to reach a result that was just fundamentally what you know what i thought was fundamentally wrong but i nonetheless thought it's it's my my job as a judge to put those views aside and you know to to follow the dictates of the law and and i'm sure i i guess i could have continued to do that for um, again, the rest of my life uh, as a as a federal judge, but I I just started feeling thinking that no, I'm not going to be comfortable doing that. I don't want to be complicit in issuing right. rulings that that I think are inflicting you know grave injustices on people. And, and as I said, the, the gun rights and abortion uh, rulings um, in particular just really kind of sharpened that 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 thought. Um, and I just thought, yeah, you know what? I think they're I, I could probably do something else that I would find more enjoyable than, than this. And that, so anyway, that's at least what, what was the catalyst for my thinking about stepping down.
0: Well, thanks for, for sharing that. So so that that's a great segue into to private practice, going back into private practice. And you actually just used the word joy, which I love. That's, that's my <laughs> word of the year is joy. If it doesn't bring me joy, I don't want to do it. Um, so, but that you know, I think there are a lot of folks in big law who would say, what the hell is he talking about, Joy? <laughs> so why don't, why don't you share with us how how you're you're finding joy in the practice of big law?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, you know, luckily, it's something that I had done before. I went on the bench. I had been a litigator at Munger Tolls and I had thoroughly enjoyed my time in private practice. Uh, I had focused mostly on appellate litigation um, back then. Um, I'm doing more of a mix of of trial court and appellate litigation now. Um, But I I guess what I I will say, the thing that I find most enjoyable is something that I don't think I appreciated when I was a litigator, and it's something that I really only came to appreciate because I I can contrast it with my life as an appellate court judge. One thing I did not realize when I when I took the uh, the job uh, on the Ninth Circuit, is is just how isolating, in some respects, being a Court of Appeals judge is. Um, mm-hmm. There were a lot of days where the only contact I had with people in the outside world were you know with my, my four law clerks and my my judicial assistant. Um, you know, just a lot of time spent um, reading by yourself. You know, writing and editing by yourself. Um, obviously in, the best part of the job is interacting with the law clerks on a daily basis. That's great and you know then we have we have our sittings and we interact with our judicial colleagues. but on the whole it's it's a fairly isolating job and, and mm-hmm. so and I, I just say that not not that it's you know a terrible job. I, I enjoyed every minute of my 11 years on the court. but one of the things that I'm really enjoying about being back in, back in private practice is just working as part of collaborative teams. Oh. Teams of lawyers, both within the firm, you know, the lawyers at, at other firms um, interacting with with uh, with the clients. And uh, I, it's just it's a much more you know, my days are are much more um, engaged with other people. Uh, and I just I find that I really enjoy that. Uh, now, I am lucky in that I am practicing at a law firm um, with a group of uh, folks who I've some of whom I've known for for 30 years. Oh. Um, we're, we're really good friends. they are people. That I love coming to the office to see and to be around. Um, we have fun together, uh, so that that again just adds to the to the joy. Now, there that's not to say that everything about uh, practice in, in big law is is you know all. Uh, it's not all joy. There, yeah, there's, there's still a a billable
0: of, hours. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. You got to keep track of those billable hours, and and you know there's there's stress and client demands, but. On the whole, I am I'm just having a terrific time. I, I have no regrets about having stepped down. I'm really happy to be back in private practice. And um yeah, it's it's been it's been a lot of fun, as I said.
0: But let's let's face it, it pays a lot better than than uh, civil service does.
1: <laughs> that is for sure. Uh, there's no question about
0: that. <laughs> so so. What's going on? So we 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 talked about uh, the se- you know Second Amendment law and in, in, in overturning Roe. What let's talk about this attack on affirmative action and DEI, um, mm-hmm. especially now that you're back in in private practice. Um, what what are your what what are your thoughts? Obviously, I have my thoughts, but, but what are your thoughts of, of what's going on and, and what's why?
1: Yeah, well, the I mean, the why I, I guess I have a harder time um, explaining. I you know I I am um, I am a beneficiary of affirmative action. Both you know my admission to Berkeley and to UCLA in particular um, were due just to the. Uh, really robust affirmative action programs that our public universities in, in this state used to have. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember when Prop 209 was enacted. I, I mean, I continue to think that, that was um, uh, the absolutely the wrong policy direction to um, to take our state. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I look at my own experience, uh, especially as I said, being admitted to UCLA. Um, there was, uh, I, I recall, I. I got admitted in the fall of 1991. Um, and there was uh, even then a lot of controversy about um, the, the school's affirmative action program. And, and I do remember uh, feeling that there was, at least in the background, you know, some measure of hostility to the fact mm-hmm. that um, folks like me were there because the view was that um, I wasn't qualified. I should have gone to some lower rank school. I'd taken the place of a, a person who, you know, um, would have been um, you know, able to excel better. Um, and, you know, I I did quite well academically at UCLA. No kidding. I, felt, I mean, I, I felt I was, yeah, fully qualified to be there. Um, and, you know, yeah, I could, I'm sure I could have gotten into another law school, um, but I, there's, I mean, I have no doubt in my mind that the, the, all of the opportunities that came my way because I was at UCLA, um, they those doors wouldn't have opened um, had I gone to uh, an, another law school and so I I look back and just think you know the, the our, our state at that time was willing to to make an, an investment and a commitment to diversity um that's what opened the doors you know for for me and I just I, I think it's terrible that what the Supreme Court has now done is basically imposed you know the, the prop 209 type regime on on the rest of the country um I yeah, that's that's another another one of those decisions. as I said, I would have been compelled to follow that even though I fundamentally disagreed with it. I don't know why this is happening now. Um, I don't have any any great insight into that. Um, but i I do think the the direction that um you know our our country has has this the turn that our direction our our country has taken with the Supreme Court's latest decision I, I just think it's um, fundamentally the wrong the wrong direction to go in
0: well it feels like just just an attack it's it's exhausting because it it feels like you're you know personally you know uh, constantly under attack you know based on something that you have no control over which is the color of your skin you know and, and how you were born and who you were born to but you know i you know it, this is nothing new it's it's you know and you know it it stands the test of time i think um and and i, I i'll tell you that Obviously, you know, I was benefited from affirmative action. A lot of people have, but I think it's not just people of color who have benefited from affirmative action. You know, Mm -hmm. people uh, are, are, you know, getting in college based, based on who they know and how much money they have and 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 being helped and and you know any to me anybody who says that they have not received any kind of a, affirmative help particularly people who are successful are delusional it, yeah. it, it, it it's it's you know it it may it is just not true and the idea that anybody buys into that you know is is unfortunate at least you know and um and delusional at, at best. And but I am kind of one of those people who feels like, you know, the words affirmative action have a stigma. And, and mm-hmm. now even DEI has a stigma, right? And, and right. I don't care what what it's called. You know, don't have don't call it affirmative action. Don't call it DEI. I, I would just like for it, for it to be fair. Just, just call mm-hmm. it fairness, you know, yeah. <laughs> forget, forget all, forget the rest of that. Just treat everybody fairly and we wouldn't have to have any kind of program.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. I completely agree.
0: Yeah. So that's my little soapbox <laughs> there. But, um, so what do you do for fun, Paul?
1: What do I do for fun? Boy, I, I used to play basketball. That was my one of my real passions uh, until I tore my Achilles uh, wow. playing basketball. Um, and uh, yeah, so I had to give that up. Um, now I just you know I jog and, and lift weights. That's not nearly as much fun. Um, I love to read. I wish I had more time to do outside reading, um, particular, particularly a, a history and biography buff. Um, that's not surprising, maybe given my mm-hmm. undergraduate major. Um, I've actually been trying to read uh, as much as I can about artificial intelligence. I'm fascinated oh. by, um, the developments that are happening in that area. I think it's, you know, going to transform, uh, society in a really fundamental way over the next But 10 is
0: it scary? Years. I find it scary. Uh,
1: yeah, there, there's, there are definitely good reasons to be scared, but I think if, if, you know, uh, if done right, I think artificial intelligence could, uh, really improve, um, uh, a lot of people's lives uh, but anyway i mean it's it's something that's coming whether we whether, we whether wanted we're
0: afraid to. of it or not yeah
1: yeah yeah um uh, yeah so i i you know and then i just i love spending time with my wife uh, we have a uh, a nice home in, in pasadena is where we live um she's done, done an amazing job uh you know constructing this very elaborate garden that uh, i try to help her out in on the weekends nice. and, Nice. um, yeah, but I, I I mostly try to spend my free time just uh, enjoying doing things with her.
0: okay, so we're we're pretty much out of time, but i I want to ask you one last question and and want uh, to to hopefully, you know, to encourage folks who are listening to and and so that question is what words of encouragement or or advice? Do you have for others about embracing their authentic authentic self?
1: Uh, um, yeah. What words of advice? <laughs> I don't know that I have any any brilliant insights to offer on that front. Um, you know, other, other than I guess just to um, you know to have certainly to have the confidence in yourself. Um, you know to um, uh, I mean, I'm just thinking back uh, when I was younger and just all the self doubts I had about what you know I was capable of doing and mm-hmm. um, you know just sort of underestimating I guess what what yep. I was capable of doing right and so just yeah trusting that you are actually if presented with you know opportunities that kind of stretch your your abilities or stretch you know the boundaries of what you think you're capable of feeling confident that you'll be able to rise to to that challenge because you you absolutely will um that's that's how people who achieve you know all all of these amazing things that uh, they they have that reservoir of self-confidence that allows them to do that um that's that's what i found myself just trying to um kind of look within and just um yeah kind of bolster my own my own sense that yeah I'm, i'm i'm capable of doing this and even if there are or people who are out there doubting you know whether i have the ability um I'll, I'll be able to rise to the challenge but um that's that's really the only thing i can think of uh, to offer uh, in terms of advice on that front
0: well well that that's uh that's that's pretty uh perfect i i would say you know when when you know because all, a lot of us face situations. everybody faces situations where they have doubts about themselves they you know, you, there may be people who are dis, discouraging you instead of encouraging you and mm-hmm. and finding the, th- finding, uh, the wherewithal with, within, you know, to be able to not listen to that mm-hmm. and, and just yep. and believe in yourself. Because uh, what's the worst thing that can happen? It you know, it yeah. it, it doesn't happen, right? right. You, it, if you ask somebody for help and they say no, okay, but yep. but but not doing those things um is, is much worse than than trying to do something. I think you're a perfect example of just you know believing in yourself, having the courage to to try things and do things and take example, take, take advantage of opportunities that are presented
1: yeah well thank you no i appreciate that that's certainly the approach i've tried to take to um, to yeah, just my professional career for sure
0: well i would encourage anybody who's looking for an appellate lawyer <laughs> um <laughs> any anybody who's listening they think that they could use paul's help he's at um wilson sansini and i'm sure he'd be would love to bring in your business to the firm (laughs) (laughs) because that's the other thing you got to do these days, right?
1: That's right. That's exactly right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, um, uh, this has been wonderful, Paul, you know, thank, thank you so much for being here to BS with me today. And, Mm. um, thanks. Thanks to everyone for listening. And until the next episode, remember, that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.